0: And I appreciate Bob Webb not telling a joke this morning. Well, we're going to be studying uh, the Gospel of John, Chapter 17. So take your Bible and turn there. And some of you know that Becky Stevenson has written a new novel. And it's called Changing Light. And uh, she brought some copies last week, but we didn't announce it, so today I want you to know that she has about ten copies with her, and if you're interested in getting a copy, you can see Becky, she's right over there, raise your hand, Becky, and author in our class, can you put that in? And there are also some back on the secretary's desk, okay? So let's go to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. For those of you who are just joining us this week, we've been in a section of John, chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, where Jesus is eating the Last Supper with the Apostles, and he has been teaching them about the future. And now, before he leaves the upper room and goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, He gives a prayer, and that's what chapter 17 of John's Gospel is all about. Everything in John's Gospel, chapter 17, if you have a red letter edition, should be in red, except the first five or six words, which is John just telling us that Jesus prayed. And because it's 26 verses, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it and just make a comment or two along the way, and hopefully you'll get the gist of it. So let me give you the outline for this chapter. Here's how the chapter is divided. Section number 1 covers verses 1 through 5 and here Jesus prays for himself. Okay? Jesus prays for himself verses 1 through 5. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for the apostles. Jesus prays for the apostles. And then verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for those who will believe the words of the apostles? In other words, later converts to Christianity. Okay? So let's look at verse number one. Jesus prays for himself. Look what it says. Jesus spoke these words lifted up his eyes to heaven. So now we get a sort of a, a picture of how Jesus prayed. When Jesus prayed, he would just lift his eyes up toward heaven. Doesn't say he closed his eyes, he just lifted them up. And uh, remember what he said when the apostles asked him how to pray? He said, Start by this. Our Father who art in heaven. And here we see Jesus following his own advice, and this is how he prayed. And here's what he said Father, see, Father, he's talking to the Father in heaven, the hour has come. And when we see that phrase, the hour has come, we know what that means because John uses that several times. It refers to Christ's death and his departure out of this world. So he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Glorify your Son. Here's the purpose Satan. Glorify your Son so that, in order that, your son may also glorify you. Now, this is the what of the prayer. Okay, In other words, he's saying, glorify your son in order that the son may glorify you. That's what he says. Now, what does it mean? Okay? So, what does the word glorify mean? Well, when you go through the scriptures, you'll discover that the word glory, glorify or glory can refer to, can mean one of two things. It can mean honor. So in this case, if you look at it that way, you can say honor your son in order that your son may honor you. The word can also mean splendor. A manifestation of God's splendor. So anytime you see the word glory or glorify, It's going to carry one of those two meanings. It's either going to mean honor or it's going to mean a manifestation of God's glory or God's splendor. And you have to determine the meaning based on the context. Words only have meaning based on context, right? So if I say I love it, what does that mean? It means what? I love spaghetti. What does that mean? Have sex with spaghetti? Doesn't mean that. I like it a whole lot, okay. King James translates the word love as charity. Have charity towards spaghetti? See, the word means nothing in and of itself apart from what? Context. So we always have to determine the meaning of the word according to its context. So probably here it could mean, Father, I want you to manifest your splendor in your Son or through your Son. Or it could mean I want you to honor your son that he may honor you. So that, it's one of those, okay? Now, why does he want him to do that? Look at this. Look what else it says. As you have given him authority over all flesh. Look, glorify your son, honor your son, as, just as, you have given him authority over all flesh. Now, Jesus has been given authority over all flesh, meaning all people. If he's been given authority, that means authority is delegated authority. If I give you authority to write a check in my name, guess what? I'm delegating you the right to do that. You're acting on my behalf. Jesus acts on God's behalf. He's been given authority over all flesh. Now, the amazing thing is, in the Roman Empire, Caesar claimed to have authority over all flesh. And he claimed it was given to him by Zeus, or Jupiter, the head god of the Roman Empire. And Caesar was Jupiter's representative on earth. He had authorization to rule the world. He had a manifestation, a manifest destiny to rule the world. He was his agent. And so when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, this is a challenge. This is a political challenge against Caesar's authority. And you have to determine who has authority over your life. Does the government have authority over your life? Does Jesus have authority over your life? So he says, as you have given me authority over all flesh. why has he been given authority over all flesh? That he should give what? Eternal life to as many as you have given him. And so God gives him authority to what end? That he will give eternal life. To all whom the Father has chosen. Then what he does, he defines for us what eternal life is. It's very interesting. Look what he says in verse 3. And this is eternal life. That they may know you. That's eternal life. Eternal life is that they may know you. The only true God. Now there are a lot of the gods, but they're not the true God. That they may know you, the only true God. And... Jesus, Messiah, whom you have sent. So eternal life means to know God. Now there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. I know about somebody through second-hand information. Somebody tells me about their golfing partner. I know about that golfing partner. I don't know the golfing partner. To know somebody means to know them firsthand. To know them intimately. Firsthand knowledge of God is based on information. It's really important that you get this. I'm a teenager. I see a girl across the room. I want to get to know her. What do I have to do to get to know her? I can talk to her friend, but then I only know what? About her. But to know her, what do I have to do? I have to talk to her. I have to get information. I say, What's your name? Sal. Where do you live? Main Street. What grade are you in? <laughs> and now, guess the more information I get, the more I know her. That's how you know somebody. So when you were dating, just think what you did with your the person who's your spouse now. How did you get to know them? Well, you hung out with them, conversed with them, you observed them. See? So this is eternal life, to have this intimate relationship with God through information that we have about God because of this relationship. So that's eternal life, verse 3, that you may know the one true and living God and the Lord Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now we know these two, God and Jesus Christ right here, through a word that he has given us. This is God's word. If I want to know God, I speak to God. He speaks back to me. Here it is. Here's what he tells me about himself. This is how I get to know him. This is how I get to know Jesus Christ. I'm actually reading the words of Jesus Christ right here, aren't I? Am I getting to know Jesus better by reading these words? I get to know how he prays. I get to know how he thinks. I get to know that he looks up into heaven. I, I, I'm learning about Jesus. I'm establishing this closer relationship with Jesus just by reading his words right here. See? So, the Jews knew about God. They prayed to God. They prayed to God in the Old Testament. But they didn't know God as a father. It was through their observation of Jesus' relationship with God as a father to a son, and a son to a father, that they began to understand that God is a father. And last week we discovered that Jesus said, Once I leave, you will be speaking directly to God as your father. And so this is what Jesus is praying about right here. He's saying, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Now look what he says. I have glorified you on earth. Which could mean I've honored you on earth, for example. I'm not going to say that every time we see the word glorified. You can just figure it out. Okay? I've glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you've given me to do. This is how Jesus has glorified or honored God. He finished the job that God gave him to do. Now look at verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself. Now it might mean, give me your splendor. With the glory meaning the same glory which I had with you before the world was. So, what we have here is we have Jesus asking God to glorify Him with the same glory, the same splendor that He had with the Father before the world was. This is speaking of Jesus' pre-existence. Jesus, if you would have seen Jesus before He came to earth, you would have seen the magnificent glory, splendor of God. But when he came to earth, he took on flesh and God's glory and splendor was hidden behind that human flesh. And there's only two or three times in the Bible that the splendor of God breaks through that human flesh and suddenly they see the splendor of God in Jesus. And that's on the, one of them was on the Mount of Transfiguration, isn't it? Remember, he was just transfigured before them and they, they there was this bright light and suddenly the splendor of God just was everywhere. And they fell down and they were like blind in there. And then when they opened their eyes, all all they could see was just Jesus (laughs) standing in front of them. And a voice came from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son. You know, follow Him. Listen to him, Him. So what we have is Jesus' prayer for Himself. So the prayer is what? Glorify me. Honor me. Give me the splendor that I had before the world began. Jesus' prayer for Himself. Now Jesus' prayer for his disciples, beginning in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men you have given me out of the world. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. Now how did Jesus manifest God's name? Uh, Probably through his, his words. Probably through his deeds, he made God known. When you say name, I manifested your name. What does it mean, I manifested your name? If I say George Washington, I've just manifested his name. Now, when I say George Washington, what do you think about President. Never told a lie, right? (laughs) All the things about George Washington. His name represents his character. It represents his personality. It represents him. Alan Street. Some of you say, "Oh, no, not that guy." <laughs> right? Others of you, but it means something to you. Name represents the person's character, okay? The person's individuality and personality. Jesus manifested God's character. How did he do that? Through his words and his deeds. When they saw Jesus operate in speaking and in acting, they saw God working through him because Jesus had his authority. He was So if somebody, if I give them authority to sign my name on a check, when they sign it, it's the same as what? Me signing. When Jesus is operating, God's operating. And that's what's happening here. So he's just making that statement in verse 6. I've manifested your name to men, the ones that you've given me out of the world. Verse 6. They were yours. They belonged to you. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. And he's talking about the apostles. You've chosen them. They belong to you. Guess what you did? You turned them over to me. I've watched over them. And guess what? They've been faithful to your word. They've kept your word. And that's what he's saying right here. So the apostles are God's gift to Jesus while he is on earth. Then in verse 7. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given to me. And they have received them. And have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Now notice what he's dealing with here. He's dealing with origins. He says uh, everything that I've said, they know that's come from you. Everything I've done, they know that's come from you. And he uses three verbs there in seven and eight. He says they received it, they know it, and they believed it. You see that? They received it. Basically, they received it. See that in verse eight? They've known it and they have believed it. They've taken Jesus as his word. At his word. They welcomed His Word. They know it's true what He's saying, that it comes from the Father. And they believe it. Now, they don't understand it. They don't understand a word that He's saying. We saw this in the past couple of weeks, right? They're confused about what He said. But they accept it on faith that what He is saying is true. And so that's what He's talking about right here. Now look at verse 10. And all are mine. All and all mine are yours. Yours are mine. These that you've given me are yours, they're mine, and I am glorified in them. I am honored in them. They've honored me by keeping your word and by being obedient, and so on and so forth. Verse 11. Now, I'm no longer in the world, which means within hours I'm going to be dead and gone. Now, I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. I'm leaving their staying. See that? I'm leaving their staying. And now finally in verse 11, we get the first request, the actual request, the specific request that Jesus makes on behalf of the disciples. Look at the middle of verse 11. Keep them. here's Here's what he wants to do. Keep through your name those whom you have given to me. Your character. Your power. You, Lord, I'm trusting that you're going to keep them. I'm coming to you in my absence. You keep them faithful. Keep them on the right path. See, What's the purpose for all this? Look at the end of verse 11. That they may be what? One. One. They may be unified as we are. One in purpose. One in mission. One in love. One in service. That they may be one, just like we're one. Not uniformity. There's a difference between unity, oneness, and uniformity. It's not uniformity. We all can't think the same. We all don't look the same. We all don't accept the same doctrine. Some of us are a little... All differently doctrinally. And that's just the way it's going to be. Or we wouldn't have all the denominations that we have. So we're not one doctrinally. We're not one in our thinking. We're not clones. We're not Xerox Christians. You know, carbon copy Christians. But we should be one in our love for each other. We should be one in understanding the gospel. There's one gospel. We should all understand that clearly. We should be one in faith and one on the same mission. So that's what he is saying here. Lord, may they be one, and as we're one. And Jesus and his Father are organically one uh, through the power of the Spirit. And we are organically one through the Spirit. If the Spirit dwells in me and the Spirit dwells in you, guess what, we're related, we're one. In some way. It's mysterious, we don't understand it. But not only are we one in our mission, we are actually one organically in some way through the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. On your behalf, I kept them. See, so he's saying, I protected them. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that is Judas, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And that's the one that God didn't give him. That's the one that Satan planted right in there. It was uh, you know his little spy right in the midst. But now, look at verse 13. I come to you. I'm leaving this world. I'm going to be around to protect them and keep them anymore. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. So what we have is that Jesus is praying for protection, when he leaves, he asks God the Father, Father, God the Father, to protect them and keep them, that their joy will be fulfilled. So, he's trusting the Father to take care of them. If they know that the Father's taking care of them, their joy will be absolutely complete. They'll have total confidence just they walk by faith, because they know God's with them all the way. Now, look at verse fourteen. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world. Just as I'm not of the world. I I don't come from the world. My allegiance is to another kingdom. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. He says, uh, here's why you need to keep them. There's somebody on the prowl that's after them. The evil one is after them. And the one reason the evil one is after them is because they're not in the world. The whole world lies in the hand of who? The evil one. If we were of the world, the world would love its own. But we're not of the world. That's not where our allegiance is. Our allegiance is to a different kingdom. So guess what? Someone's on the prowl after us, isn't it? When God creates Adam and Eve, guess what he tells them to do? Rule the world. Be fruitful, multiply. Take dominion over the world. That's dominion's rule over the world. And guess what? Guess who creeps in real quick? The evil one. Jesus is baptized. Holy Spirit comes upon him. He's anointed to be the king of the world. And guess what? Next scene, he's in the wilderness. Who's creeping in? Satan's creeping in. So, the ruler of this world wants to... Derail our mission. That's basically what's happening and he's asking God to protect them. Keep them and protect them from the evil one. We can have confidence that that's going to happen. And we can joyfully move ahead on our mission. Look at verse 16. They are not of the world just as I'm not of the world. And that's just simply sort of summarizing that statement. So that's request number one. Keep and protect them. Request number two. You ready? Look at verse 17 sanctify them which means consecrate them Uh, make them holy can be translated that way how do you do it in your truth make them separate where means can mean separate separate them for your truth for the gospel for your word is truth and so they're going to be on a mission they need to be consecrated for the mission they need to be holy for the mission they need to be separate from the mission They need to be sanctified. And who has to do that? God has to sanctify them. Can't sanctify myself. So God consecrates me. He gives me the Holy Spirit. It's in a sense that if I were going to consecrate somebody and I were a bishop in the Episcopal Church, I would walk up to them and lay my hands on them. I'd consecrate them, wouldn't I? Who's going to consecrate the apostles? God is to consecrate the apostles. He's bestowing the Holy Spirit on them. He's making them holy. Does that make sense to you? And he does it through the word. He doesn't literally put his hands on you. But he's given us a word that keeps us true on the true path. So we don't veer one way or the other. The reason for the consecration? Look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, guess what? I've sent them into the world. They have a mission to accomplish. Once I'm gone, they have a mission to accomplish. Therefore, they need protection. They need consecration. And that's what he asked God to do. Look at verse 19. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified by the truth. Jesus sets the example. Uh, He's kept himself holy, and guess what? He'll keep himself holy all the way to the end. When he walks out of this room, he's going to go right to the Garden of Gethsemane. And guess what? There's going to be an old whisperer there. You don't have to die. But he'll stay consecrated. He'll stay holy. He'll stay focused. He'll stay separate from the world. He will complete the mission that God gives him to do. And he sets the example, therefore, for us. Verse 20, we get to where Jesus starts to pray for the other believers. Look at the other believers, other disciples. Pray for himself, verses 1 through 5, for the Apostles 6 through 19, and now he prays for others, verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, these twelve alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He prays that we will too will be consecrated, that we too will be protected. Who will be? Those that are converts of the apostles. And that eventually works its way right down to us. This is a prayer for us. Right here, verse 20 is a prayer for us. He's praying for us. When you witness to another person, and they come to Christ, this prayer is for those people. This should encourage you when you're witnessing. (laughs) That When you witness to somebody, you can bet that God has been that Jesus has prayed for them, and if they are given to you as a convert, they're going, to be, they're going to be protected and they're going to be consecrated. Those who believe through the word. Look at this, verse 21. What does he pray for? That they may be what? One. That they may be one. Not just the apostles, but they may be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I in you. And This is If if you were with us in other chapters, we know this deals with the Holy Spirit and giving us the Holy Spirit. And we are in Christ and the Father's in us and vice versa. That they may be one. For what purpose does God want us to be one? Look at this. That they may be one as you, verse 21, are in me and I in you, that, so that, in order that, they may be one in us, that the world may what? believe that you sent me. The world will believe in Jesus, that Jesus is God's authorized representative and the king who has all authority over all human flesh, and they will submit to him when they see us being one, when they see unity, when the world sees the church dividing and fighting they laugh at Christianity. But if the world sees that we're one and unified and not fighting with each other, they'll sit up and take notice. And this is one of the great tragedies, I think, in our time, is that there's not unity in the church. You know? We don't have to agree with Presbyterians, we don't have to agree with the Episcopals on these finer points of doctrine, but guess what? We're one in Christ. We should be on that same mission. We should be caring for people. We should be cooperating. We should be working together. I can't tell you the number of groups that have divided over crazy things. And when the world sees us divided, guess what they say? They're just a bunch of hypocrites. But when they see us working together, doing things selflessly... They sit up and they take notice. So, we need to be different. Because if we're not different, the world recognizes it, and it will be no difference to them. Why would, Christ, why would they come to Christ under those circumstances? Look at verse 22. And the glory which you gave me could mean honor or splendor which you gave me. I've given them that they may be one just as we are one. If it means God has given us the Spirit which enables us to be one on mission and in His will, it could mean that or something like that. It's just impossible to tell exactly what He means by those words, but He wants us to be unified. Look at verse 23. I think it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that all this happens. It's when we operate according to our own desires and flesh that we're all divided, Right? But when we're in touch with the Spirit, then we're united. Verse 23 says... I am in them, and you are in me, and they are made perfect in one, and and that they may be perfect in one, and that the world may know that you sent me. See, we need to be mature, and we need to be one in the same mission. That the world may know that you sent me, and have loved them just as you have loved me. So, uh, we should be exhibiting God's character. We should be exhibiting the character of God, which is love, and unity, and People will sit up and take notice of that. Verse 25. Father, I desire that they also, that they also, whom you gave me, may be one with me where I am. Look at this. I also desire that they may be with me where I am. Now this speaks of the future, right? Where is Jesus going? He's going to his father's house. He's going to set up a kingdom. And he wants us to be part of that. He wants us not only to be on earth. He came to earth. He was on earth for a while. And he departed. He wants us to do our job, complete our job, and be ready to depart. He wants us to be with him where he is. So I think he's talking about the Father's house based on chapter 14 and God's kingdom in the future where he is. So look at verse keep reading verse 24, I guess. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may, may be with me where I am. Why? Why does he want that? So that they may behold my glory, the splendor, which they only got a glimpse of. Three of them got a glimpse of on the Mount of Transfiguration, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. oh righteous Father, still has his eyes up to heaven. He says, O Holy Father, O Righteous Father, the world has not known you. The world has not known you. But I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. Because Jesus told them that. And then finally verse 26. And I have declared to them your name. That's what Jesus did in the past. I've declared to them your name. And look at this. And will declare it in the future. When he's resurrected, he'll spend 40 days on earth declaring God's name. And through the power of the Holy Spirit after his ascension, he will continue to do that. Why will he do that? That the love which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So, all of this comes down to this statement. What God wants is us to be filled with His love, and and filled with His charity, in a sense. That's what love means. Don't use the word, think of love as an emotion. But we're filled with His charity, and we act charitable. We, We perform acts on behalf of God, and when we do that, we manifest God's presence to the world. When we act like Jesus, we're acting like God. When we're charitable and we're selfless and we're, you know, put others first, uh, then the love of God is manifest in us and through us. And uh, I really believe that this is probably one of the reasons that the President's Class has been as successful as it's been. Uh, Raph and Sarah Jones would never quit the President's Class. And it's not because I'm standing up here teaching if I dropped dead tomorrow and you got the worst teacher in the world they would be here next week anyway wouldn't they why would they be here because of the love of Christ that this class is shown and that's, that trumps everything else so this is love what is love well 1 Corinthians 13 says we love it. that's your homework assignment Go home and read what love is. Love is what? Kind. You can read what it is. That's the character of God, and that should be our character and our stature as well. And we're on a mission of love. You know, John Knox, who was the great Scottish reformer back in the late 1500s, was on his deathbed. And he was lying there, and he looked over to his wife and he said, Read to me John 17. And uh, when she read John 17, he looked up and he said, That's where I first cast my anchor. John 17. That's why he was so powerful. This is the man who said, Give me Scotland or I will die. He pled on behalf of the nation. And it became Christian, Christian nation. And he cast his anchor first in John seventeen. And his life was anchored in John seventeen. That's why he was so successful. And it served him well. Until God lifted the anchor. He said, Now it's time to come home. And it'll serve you well. And it'll serve me well if we anchor our lives and our ministry in John seventeen. We're the only God, the only Jesus that some people will see. We're the only Bible they will ever read. The world doesn't read that Bible, but they read you. You're a living epistle. And when they read you, what do they see? Love and unity? Or do they that shouldn't suffer? see and Our mission is in the anchor of John 17 chapter 18, Jesus walks out of the upper room, goes into Gethsemane, where he's arrested, tried, crucified, and then resurrected. And that's what the rest of the Gospel of John's about. That's what we'll pick up next week. Lord, we thank you for your word. Oh, help us, Lord, to get our eyes off of self and get our eyes on you. We know the Father because we know you. When we see you, we see the Father. We see what he's like. We see his kindness. We see his generosity. We see his charity. We see his power manifested. We see one who steps in for those who are disenfranchised and disadvantaged and hurting and rescues them and saves them from their condition. Oh, Lord, we want to be those kinds of people. You think of the people in this world who have have nothing. Who will stand with them? Who will stand and help them? Think of uh, Kathy and her work. Think of the, the work of the people, Lord, who were saving uh, unborn babies. That's the work that you've given us to do. Help us to be with the disadvantaged, the marginal, and the disenfranchised and may we be Christ to them in his name we pray Amen Thank you